0: So today is a very good day to be a Baptist. The reason I say that is we're doing two very wonderful Baptist distinctives. The first, of course, is the potluck. The second is you get to see real, true baptism and the obedience to our Lord. So today we're going to do, I'm going to attempt to do an impossible task. What I'm going to do is I'm going to attempt to teach you everything I know about baptism in a single sermon. Which is rather impossible, but this is the task that I have, and so this is the task that I'm going to do. In all honesty, this should be done and could be done in an entire series. Perhaps maybe we'll do a Sunday school teaching on this, but today this is what we got. I'm going to try to give you a well-orbed understanding of baptism here and now. Now, of course, this sermon will be recorded, so you can always listen to it again. I have my notes If you want me to send them to you, I can send them to you. Uh, And you don't have to jot down all the scriptures what I'm saying. Just try to get what you can get, and hopefully you'll be blessed. So the question is, on this lengthy discussion of baptism, where should we start? Where should we begin? We can start a whole bunch of various different places, but I thought maybe we should start where the Bible starts, when you first pick up the New Testament, and you find out that there's a Baptist already there. Anybody know that Baptist? It's, of course, John. John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. So why don't you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, and we'll begin our look at what is baptism, what does the Bible teach us, why are we doing this, what are we doing this, what does it mean, and who should this be done to. So open up your Bible to Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 4. Mark 1, verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism for repentance, for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and all those in Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So we find out that there's a man named John. We going to find out elsewhere in Matthew chapter 3 that he wears strange clothes and he eats strange things, and he is completely sold out, committed to God. Last time I was here, I encouraged all of us to do some kind of New Year's resolution or some kind of resolution period where we wanted to be sold out to God we were not satisfied with simply being Christian, but we wanted to be, if we weren't saved, we wanted to be saved. And if we were saved, we wanted to grow in our faith. And so that's John. John was not someone who was satisfied with just simply checking the block, saying the prayer, occasionally showing up to church. John wanted to be fully committed to Christ and to God in a world that was not fully committed to him. Did everybody see that? John didn't care about what other people were doing, but he wanted to be fully committed to God and to do what God told him to do. And so what did he do? He went out into the wilderness, into a place of hostility, into a place of death. And he went there to preach a message, and that message was a baptism of repentance. That's kind of an ambiguous phrase, a baptism of repentance. But we see two things in there. He went out there to baptize. And he went out there to do something about repentance. And this repentance has something to do with remission of sins. It says for remission of sins. If you have a New King James Bible, you see a little note there that says possibly or because of the forgiveness of sins, which I think is actually what's going on here. So he went out there preaching. He preached repentance. Now, who knows what repentance means? Some of you, this may be the only Greek word you know, metanoia, the change of mind. That's true. It's to change your mind. But guess what? Your mind controls your body, doesn't it? Isn't your mind the one moving your body? You cut your head off, you're dead. The body's not moving anymore. Because your mind is controlling your body. So you have a change of mind, you have a change of action. Change of mind produces change of action. Hopefully everybody sees that. So he went out there and he preached that you need to change your mind about God. You need to change your mind about your sin. And that resulted, after people did that, they were to be baptized because of the remission of sins. So there's some connection between repentance, baptism, and remission of sins. And we see in verse 5, that's exactly what happened. They went out to them, they confessed their sins, and then they were baptized. Now let's go over to Matthew chapter 3 to hear a little bit more. This is kind of a condensed version of John the Baptist's ministry. So we'll go to Matthew chapter 3 to get a fuller orb understanding of what he was doing out there. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food were locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him, confessing their sins. And when many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming into his baptism, or coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruit and worthy of repentance. And do not think to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up from these stones, children of Abraham. And now, even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, his wintering fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear out the threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That is the summary of John the Baptist's ministry. So let's break it down. So the first thing we find out about John is he came preaching a message: repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Just a little antidote. When I was on my journey to getting saved, I started reading through the Gospel of. Matthew and I got to this section and I didn't really like this guy John too much because what's his message? Look at verse 1. Repent. Turn around. Stop sinning. Stop living that way. Repent for God's kingdom is at hand. And I thought, man, this guy's grumpy. This is not the message I want to hear. Maybe Jesus has better news. Kept reading. You know what Jesus' message is? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's how he begins his message. That's a summary of the message of the gospel. Repent. Turn around. Oftentimes when people start saying, what is the gospel? Some of you maybe have this off the hip. You got to start with the bad news. That's what Jesus did. The bad news is repent. Because as you stand right now in your sins, you are not ready to meet God. And hopefully you see that connection. Look at verse verse 3. The summary of John's message was he was to be a one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So how was John to prepare the way of the Lord? By preparing the people to meet the Lord. And how could they be prepared? Not in their natural sinful state, but by repenting. To turn from their sin for God's kingdom, which represents God himself, is coming. And then, of course, we see, once again, John in verse 4, he is sold out to God. He wears camel's hair, leather belt. He doesn't care about what he looks like. He doesn't care about what he eats. He just eats what's there. He just wears what's available. And so all these people come out, they hear his message of repentance, and they respond. Hope you see that. They respond to his call. He told them to repent. They confess their sins. You see that? He says, repent. They confess their sins. Not just their sin, but their sins. They go particular. They say, these are the things that I've done. These are the things that I've done that are evil. Many times people will say, we have all made mistakes. We've all done things that are wrong, right? Most of you say, I'm not perfect. We're all human. But that's not confessing your sins. That's confessing you're human. You need to confess your sins. These are the things that I've done that have offended God. Not just that you've made mistakes. This is one of the, the words I don't like. And in fact, if I see it in a child's book, I usually don't buy it. Because you've done more than made a mistake. You've offended a righteous God intentionally, breaking his laws. But the wage of sin is death. You deserve death. You deserve hell. You need to repent and to be prepared to meet the Lord. So that's what he did. And so these people responded, and they confessed their sins, and then he baptized them. You see the order? He first preached, then they heard, then they were convicted, then they confessed, Then he baptized them. Now they're ready to meet the Lord. And then John goes off There's some other people that come to him. These are people who hear. They're the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but he doesn't baptize them. Why? He says in verse 7, you are a brood of vipers. You are a bunch of snakes. How politically correct is that? A bunch of so-called seekers, he said, you are a bunch of snakes. You don't deserve to be baptized. I will not baptize you. Why? because you just want to check the block. You don't want to actually repent. He says, bear fruit and worthy of repentance. Actually be repentant people. Don't just mark the block. Don't just say what you think needs to be said, but actually live it. Be true repenting people. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. He says, don't trust in your flesh. Don't trust in who your mom and your dad is. Don't trust in the fact that you're from the South. Don't trust the fact that your parents are Christian, your grandparents are Christian. Somebody in your family is a minister. None of that matters. But what matters is that you repent. And he goes on to tell them that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's a saying that says the proof is in the pudding. You can know right now if you are headed to heaven or headed to hell. How? Well, there's many ways, but look at verse verse 10 again. And even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. That's a metaphor, you are the tree, by the way. The axe is laid at your root. You're about to die. You are ready to be cut down. And he says that every tree that does not bear good fruit, that is every person that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. How do you know or how can you know this very day if Christ were to come back, were you to be chopped down and thrown into the fire of hell? Your fruit, right? Don't throw stones at me. That's what John said. This is God's word, your fruit. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus divides the sheep, and the goats. Do you remember what criteria he divides the sheep and the goats by? How you treated my brothers, these ones. And he lists all the various things. Or here's another text, Matthew chapter 7. These people say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful things and show up to church and do all these things? And he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. The proof is in the pudding. If you have true faith, you'll have regeneration. Regeneration will change your life. You'll have new fruit. You will look godly. You will act godly. You will be godly. But if you have no good fruit, you have no regeneration. If you have no regeneration, you have no faith. Your repentance is useless. And if you've been baptized, that too is useless. It means nothing. You need to have true faith, true repentance, true conversion, and then Christ will not come and destroy you. And that's what he says. He says, I baptize you with water, but there is one who's coming after me. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and he will baptize you with fire. I don't want to get caught up on this, but I don't think you want the baptism of fire because he tells you what the baptism of fire is right after that. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I don't want that fire. I want the fire of the Holy Spirit, but I want that fire. He's coming and his wrath is with him. So from John's message, from the baptism of John, we learn a whole bunch of things about baptism. We we learn first that John's message was a message of repentance and that he called people to repent And then to symbolize the cleansing that they received from the repentance, he told them to be baptized. So this is where we get the idea that baptism is an outward sign of an inward truth. You first are called to repent, then you repent. By that repentance, you are cleansed. Then you are to be baptized as a symbol or as a picture of the cleansing that comes. And so have you ever wondered why we're baptized in water? Why water? Well, it's readily available, but that's not why. The reason we're baptized in water is because water is a picture of getting clean. Hopefully you all take baths. Hopefully you take baths in water because you know that water gets you clean. If you have something nasty on your hand, something really disgusting, you just go hit some hand sanitizer. Is that what you do? If you do, don't touch me. Go into the bathroom, hit it with water. Maybe some soap, but definitely water. And then you'll be cleansed. There's a connection between water and purification. And so, too, the reason John baptized in water and the reason Christians baptized in water is because there's a connection between water and purification. Now, hopefully that should be obvious to all. But just to show you scriptural proofs of this reality, the connection of water and cleansing and purification, consider John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 25, we read this. Then there arose a dispute among some of John's disciples and Jews about purification. So John's disciples and some Jews were arguing about purification. Okay? They were arguing about some kind of rite of purification. And what were they arguing about? He tells us. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing all, and more are coming to him. So their dispute about purification was their dispute about baptism. Hope you see that. It says they were disputing about purification, and it turns out what their dispute was is the fact that Jesus and his disciples, or specifically his disciples, were baptizing more people than John. And so here the Bible is connecting purification with baptism. Baptism points to your purification. It points to your cleansing. So when we go to baptize today, and you see somebody going to the water, you should be thinking, this symbolizes what? Anybody wake out there? This symbolizes what? Cleansing. This symbolizes being washed to be made new. And we see this picture also in Ephesians chapter five, Ephesians 5:25: 5, "Husbands love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish before him. So what does Christ do to his bride, to his church? He finds her filthy, but then he washes her clean with the washing of water. And so after he washes her clean, now she is perfect. She is glorious. She doesn't have any spots. She doesn't have any wrinkles. She is completely holy and without blemish. And probably the background, at least in part of this, is in Ezekiel, when you have Israel being pictured as a baby. And the baby is full of blood and grime and grossness. I don't know if any of you have actually seen a baby being born or caught a baby being born, but it's a little gross. They come out with some weird stuff on them. And so then they clean them off. If you don't clean them off, it's gross. And so that's what's being pictured here in Ezekiel, is the baby is born and it's still, in the words, covered in blood. It's still filthy. And so then God washes that baby off. She grows up, he he washes her off, and then he marries her, and that's what God does for us. He finds us filthy. He finds us dirty. He finds us in our blood, and he washes us with water to make us clean. Now, what water is this? Is it the waters of baptism? Is God cleansing his people in the waters of baptism? No. Titus 3, 5 tells us what kind of water God does to cleanse his people off. He says in Titus 3, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, this morning I'm going to baptize someone, but I'm not the Holy Spirit. This is not my washing. This is a symbol of what he does. The Holy Spirit is the one who baptizes you. He is your true baptizer. And what he does is he washes you clean, clean. From your sin. This is how God saves us, and this text tells us it's not based on works of righteousness that we have done. Nobody here, if they're saved, is saved because of the things that they have done. Everybody see that? Nobody here. Nobody here is going to be saved by the things that they have done, but rather we're saved by the grace of God. And that grace is offered to all of you by repenting, by believing by calling upon his name. If you call upon his name, you will be saved and he will wash you clean. That is what this is. But the point of all of this is simply to say that the waters of baptism point to cleansing and they point to the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. It is an outward sign of an inward truth. In fact, interesting enough, maybe some of you, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 7. I'll show you this. Mark chapter 7, brings this connection between baptism and washing very tightly hopefully everyone can see that if they've ever seen a baptism and never thought about the water but mark chapter 7 very much so brings the idea of baptism and washing together so mark chapter 7 verse 4 we see this when they come I'm talking about the Jews here when they come from the marketplace they do not eat unless they wash and many and there are many other things which they have received and hold like the washing of cups and pitchers Copper vessels and couches. Let's talk about the Jews, and it says that they don't eat unless they first wash, wash their hands, and then not only do they wash their hands, but when they come back from the marketplace and other things, they wash cups and pitchers, copper vessels and couches. So, um, they're cleansing all the things that they eat on, all the things that people could possibly sit on. Okay, but do you know that the word here in Young's literal translation, the actual Greek word is baptism? They baptize themselves and they baptize their cups, their pots, their brazen vessels, and their couches. But your translation probably says wash. Does everybody's translation say wash? Anybody's translation say baptize? No? Mine does. The Greek does. Uh, because there is a connection between baptism and washing. And sometimes the word baptism is even translated as washing. So the point of all this is simply say, don't miss the connection. Don't miss the reality that the waters of baptism symbolize washing. Making you new, cleansing you. So, so far, we've learned a little bit about baptism. We've learned that it's a sign of the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, God coming upon us and cleansing us from all of our sins so that we may may be holy and blameless before Him. Next day, we'll look at baptism, is when we go into baptism, we follow Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's own example. Jesus doesn't just call you to be baptized. But Jesus himself was baptized. And we see this in Matthew chapter 3. You're already there. Matthew 3, verse 13. We read this. Then Jesus came from ba- Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. So John was out there, remember, he was out there calling people to repent, to symbolize their repentance and the cleansing they received from their repentance by being baptized. And then something very surprising happens. Jesus, the Son of God, the blameless Lamb who never sinned ever in his entire life, comes to John to be baptized. And that's kind of surprising, right? Because he's calling people to repent. He's saying, you need to repent for your sins. You need to confess your sins. But Jesus didn't have any sins. And he didn't need to confess any sins. And yet Jesus was still baptized by John. It's surprising. And John himself was surprised. He said, no, this is not right. This is not kosher. This is not good. I can't do this. You need to baptize me. I can't baptize you. I can't call you to repent. You have to call me to repent. But Jesus said to him in verse 15, permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And that's a perplexing scripture. Maybe some of you have wrestled. Why was Jesus baptized? Sometimes kids ask, the best questions. Maybe some of your kids may have one day asked you, why was Jesus baptized? What would you say? Why was he baptized? You might quote this verse, to fulfill all righteousness. And the kid is probably not going to be satisfied and say, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? What's going on here? Well, we have to give a better answer than just saying to fulfill all righteousness because we need to interpret what that means. And so here's what I think it means. God had commanded people to be baptized. Jesus was a person, and so Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness, needed to be baptized. So Jesus fulfilled the command to be baptized. He fulfilled the command to be circumcised. He fulfilled all of the commands. And so now, Jesus in his perfect righteousness can offer us full obedience. He didn't leave any that was unchecked. He completely identified with us as people, fulfilling all of the commands of God so that we could then have his perfect righteousness given to us if we repent and believe. But here's the point of all this. He was commanded to be baptized because there's a command to be baptized. There was a command for Jesus to be baptized. And so he did it. Perhaps there might be a command for you to be baptized. Have you done it? You see that? And notice, it's not a spiritual baptism. He's not talking about a spiritual baptism. He's going to John. John. And getting baptized by him in real water. And he's saying, I have to do that to fulfill our righteousness. Perhaps there's a command for you to be baptized, that you should also follow in the steps of Jesus. And we know this. If we go over to Luke chapter 7, verse 30, God commanded everyone in that day to repent and to be baptized. That's what the Bible says. In Luke chapter 7, verse 30, we read this statement. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So, what was the will of God for the Pharisees and the Sadducees? To be baptized by John. John called everyone, everywhere, to repent of their sins and to symbolize that repentance by being baptized. And when they didn't do this, they rejected the will of God for themselves. And by the way, this has not changed. What is God's will for your life? Your sanctification. What is God's will for your life? For you to repent. For you to believe. That's why it says that God has commanded everyone, everywhere, to repent. It's a command. It's not just an offer. It's an offer, but a command. It's both. We're offering you the gift of salvation. We're also commanding you to bow the knee to Christ. But notice, it's not just that we're commanding you to bow the knee of Christ and then live however you want. We're commanding you to bow the knee of knee to Christ and to live after Christ and to obey Him. But what is one of the things that He's called that He's asked you to do? To be baptized. You see that? He's asking you to be baptized. He's not asking you to regenerate yourself. God will do the regeneration. You need to be baptized. That is what He's calling you to do. This is still God's will today. In Luke chapter 20, we find out that baptism of John was not a baptism from men, but from God. And that's why we asked that rhetorical question in verse four. He says to the Jews of that day, "The baptism of John was it from heaven?" Or from men? And of course, the right answer is, it is from heaven. John did not go out there baptizing because he thought it was a good idea. God told him to go out and baptize. It was not his thought process, not an optional idea. It was the command or the ordinance of God. And today, we are still commanded to be baptized. And we're commanded to be baptized by Jesus. Now turn over to Matthew chapter 28. So John was commanded by God to baptize and the people were commanded to be baptized by John by repenting. Now, in Christian baptism, we are commanded by Jesus to baptize and the people are commanded to obey Jesus by repenting and being baptized. All right, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. In light of that, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. For lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Amen. So let's, let's, let's see a couple things. Number one, who has all authority in heaven and on earth been given to? Christ. He is King of kings. And Lord of Lords. When we say Jesus is Lord, that's not a meaningless statement. We're saying Jesus is Master. Jesus is King. I like to say Jesus is Boss. He rules over all. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what does He do with that authority? You say, Yes, Jesus is Lord. Well, do you obey Him as Lord? What does He do in light of that authority? He tells you to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That's what He tells you. So His authority isn't just over sinful people out there, but it's over you his church, and in light of the fact that I am king, in light of the fact that you call me Lord, that you say you're my servant, that you're a Christian, you're my follower, then follow me. And you follow him by trying to evangelize, trying to make disciples. And when you make a disciple, which is when you share the gospel, you tell them the way of salvation, you tell them to repent, you tell them to call upon the name of the Lord, and they do, what should you do? If you're sharing the gospel with somebody, and you tell them all these things, and they say yes, and they get on their knees, and they cry out to God, right? They cried out to God. They called upon his name. They get up. You say, you're saved. Hallelujah. Now what? Back to Twitter. Back to Facebook. I wonder who's going to win the NFL game. No. You should be doing something. What does the text say? You make disciples, and you leave them. No. You make disciples, and you baptize them. The next thing you should be telling them is, you need to be Baptized. Because this is the very first thing that you're supposed to do after you're saved. We forgot that. I don't know how we forgot that. It's right there in the text. You are to make a disciple and you are to tell them you need to be baptized. It's not an optional thing. It's not something that you can do later on. Put this off six months. Put this off two years. Maybe figure it out. Maybe call grandma. No, you are to baptize the disciples that you make. Then in verse 20, after they're baptized, what are you supposed to do? Teach them all things that I have commanded. That is full of discipleship. Make a disciple, baptize a disciple, teach that disciple. And for those who wonder if this is just a command to the apostles, look at the very last phrase in verse 20. For I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Did the disciples live to the end of the age? No, they didn't. The reason Jesus is saying this is, I, the one who commands you, am going to be with you always to fulfill this command. The command was to make disciples. That hasn't changed. The command was to teach the disciples. That hasn't changed. The command was to baptize the disciples. That has not changed. Christ is still with us. We're still to do all three things, make a disciple, baptize a disciple, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, if there's any question if this is the right interpretation of this passage, all we have to do is ask, who were the original audience, the apostles, the disciples, and how did they obey this command? Does that make sense? If we can find out who originally heard this command and see how they applied this command, then we can figure out why we're supposed to apply the command. Hopefully that makes sense. So turn over to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to see how the early church who heard the Great Commission fulfilled the Great Commission, and how they applied the principle of making a disciple, baptizing a disciple, and to command to teach those disciples. So Acts chapter 2, verse 38. We read this. Then Peter said to them, Repent. Hey, do you see this word showing up a lot in the sermon? Repent. Why is it showing up so often? Because you need to repent. Don't forget that. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now jump down to verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day there were 3000 souls added to them so what's this message repent repent and to be baptized i think what it says for the remission of sins it means the same thing it meant when it was saying when john said he has a baptism for repentance or for the remission of sins in other words because you have your sins remitted because you have been cleansed, then be baptized. So the question is this. Do you think your sins are remitted? Do you say, Jesus is my Savior, I've repented my sins, I've been cleansed, I've been washed. Then, if that's true of you, you should be baptized. You can't hold to one commandment not the other. Repent, okay, I need to do that. For the remission of sins, I need to do that. Be baptized, optional. It doesn't work that way. The same person who said repent is the same person who said and be baptized. Then, in verse 40, he continues to exhort them, tell them to repent, telling them to be baptized. He tells them, be saved from this perverse generation. Some of you say, I'm not a bad person because you're better than the perverse generation. Congratulations. You're better than a bunch of perverts. That means nothing. I remember when I got expelled from middle school, I went to an alternative school. And when they did the alternative school, there was really bad people there. See, I was bad in a regular school, but these guys were really bad. I remember being in sixth, seventh grade, they're talking about opioids and all this other stuff. I learned a lot about drugs in that alternative school, and I was better than them. Congratulations, you're better than the worst people. It doesn't make a difference. It's not a good thing. You live in a perverse generation, you need to be part of the righteous generation, be part of the saints. It's not good enough to be better than your neighbor. You have to have perfect righteousness, which you cannot have, and you can only get it through Christ and repenting. So, verse 41, after he preaches this message, let's see how the original audience responded. Then those who gladly received his word... What what word? Repent and be baptized. That word. They gladly received his word. They were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Not six months later, not six years later, not when they can invite all their friends and their family to show up. It was that day that they received his word that they were baptized and added to them. Who's to them? To the church. This is the order. You hear, you repent. You're baptized, then you're incorporated into the church. Then, look at verse 42. Then we see, they continued, these are the people that were baptized, that were added to the church. They continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. This is the all things I've commanded you part. Everybody see that? We can all see the order. He made the disciples. In that day, he baptized the disciples, and afterwards, they continued to remain in the church, where they were in the fellowship, in the teaching, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers of the church. This is the biblical pattern. This is what needs to be done. So we should make disciples. We should baptize them. We should bring them to the church. And then we should teach them all things that Jesus Christ has done. Did you know in the New Testament, there is no concept of an unbaptized Christian? It's just not there. You will not find it. You find it out here, in our church, hopefully not our church, but in the church today, but you don't find it in that church. And I want to be part of that church. I want to be modeling our church based on the biblical church, based on the church that God established, not doing things how we want to do it. There's no idea of this idea of an unbaptized Christian. There's a limited time frame, of course. There's a moment, a second, a day, whatever, small period of time where you believe and haven't been baptized. But this idea that you'd be walking around for decades, for long periods of time, unbaptized—it's just completely foreign to the New Testament, and we're going to see that all throughout the Bible. But I want to show you a few places where we have this idea of unbaptized Christians completely outside of the scope of the Bible. In Mark chapter 16, we read this. You have a New King James? You we'll see this or not? Sorry. He says this, and he said to them, "Go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned." There's no idea of a non-baptized Christian. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Who does not believe will not be condemned. It doesn't say you're not believing and not baptized. Because there's no idea. The idea that someone will believe and not be baptized is completely foreign. It just goes together. Who believes and is baptized? It goes together. This is what people did. In fact, people still do this today. If you are in a Muslim country and you have a Bible, you're starting to hang out with Christians, you're talking to Christians, all these things, you're not a Christian. You're just someone interested in Christianity. They might scourge you, they might beat you, they might ridicule you, they might ignore you, but you're not a Christian. You know when they consider you Christian? When you baptize, Because that is when you are saying this is the point of no return. You're not interested in Christianity, you're not considering the claims of Christianity into entering into the waters of baptism. It's a public proclamation to everyone, I am united to Christ. They know it. How come we don't? Isn't that crazy? How in the world could a Muslim have better theology than we do. That's awful. How do they know this, but we don't? Elsewhere in the Bible, we see this. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 22, should I say. This is the testimony of Paul getting saved. This is Paul's testimony. After he heard the gospel, Ananias preached it to him, Jesus preached it to him. He now has the scales on his eyes fallen off. He's seen the beauty of Christ. He realizes he's forgiven. This is what Ananias says to him. This may sound very strange to your ears because we have our own form of Christianity sometimes instead of a biblical Christianity. Ananias says this to him. Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins by calling upon his name. Now don't confuse it. It's not baptism that washes away your sins. It's calling upon your name, calling upon the name of the Lord. Wash away your sins by calling upon the name of the Lord. But he does tell him, arise and to be baptized. It's all there, all there, immediately, Right when somebody's getting converted. He tells them, Call upon the name of the Lord for the remission of your sins, and arise and be baptized right now. And that's exactly what he did. He arose and he was baptized that day. See the concept? Make a disciple? Call him to be baptized? Teach a disciple. Same thing we have here. And you can see this same pattern all throughout the New Testament. You see it with Lydia. Paul preached the gospel to Lydia. She believed there was water there, boom. They were baptized. The Philippian jailer. You remember that story? He's about to kill himself. He preaches the gospel to him. At midnight, what happens? He believes. He then takes him to be baptized right there. Boom. He's baptized. Then he answers the church. We see this with the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip. He's called to go out in the middle of the desert. He doesn't know why. He just obeys. One of God's elect out there, somebody who believes out there, he goes out there. He finds the Ethiopian eunuch reading the gospel. He preaches the gospel. The Ethiopian eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? He says, do you believe in God? Do you believe the message I told you? Do you believe in Christ? He said, Yes. What prevents you? Nothing. Boom. He baptized them. You see that? It's all throughout the New Testament. Philip does the same thing to the Samaritans. He preaches the gospel. They repent. They believe. They are baptized. They're added to the church. And this is what we should do. This is the testimony of the scriptures. You believe. You make a disciple. You're baptized. You enter the church. And you are commanded to follow after all things after Jesus. Here's what Cyril of Jerusalem said. Now, this is not scripture. I'm going to the early church is the fifth century, but Cyril of Jerusalem said this, and I thought it was amazing. He says this: Jesus sanctified baptism by himself being baptized. Jesus sanctified baptism by himself being baptized. If the Son of God was baptized, what godly man is he that despises baptism? You see what he's saying? If Jesus was willing to be baptized, what makes you think he doesn't expect you to be baptized? And how in the world could you possibly be a godly person and say, "I refuse to be baptized"? Jesus didn't need to be baptized, at all. But he said, "In my association with you, sinful people, I'll be baptized to fulfill God's command." Then he tells you to be baptized. You say, "I don't care. I don't want to. I'm not interested." It's shocking. It's unbelievable. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this about baptism. It says some good things about baptism. It's not so good things. This is a good part. It says this: Although it be a great sin to treat with contempt or neglect this ordinance of baptism. Yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed onto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all are baptized or undoubtedly regenerated. Let me explain what it's saying. He's saying this. Just because you hit the waters doesn't mean you're necessarily regenerated. There were false people in the early church and false people today who have been baptized and not regenerated. So don't confuse being baptized with regeneration. Regeneration happens immediately upon belief. If you believe, you are certainly be regenerated. And John It says all, all who believe are children of God. So you can know if you believe you are a child of God. You don't have to wait for baptism. You're already a child of God. You've already been regenerated. So don't get that confused. It's also saying that, it's not saying that you can't be regenerated without being baptized. So it's clearing those two errors. Just because you're baptized doesn't mean you're regenerated. Just because you're not baptized doesn't mean you're not regenerated. Okay, so it clears that away. It says, although that's true, it is still a great sin to treat with contempt or neglect this ordinance. Despite it not being the actual act that regenerates you, it's still a great sin to neglect this ordinance. And where did they get this from? Well, the proof text that they cite this is Luke chapter 7, verse 30, which we already looked at, which was the Pharisees and the Sadducees refusing to be baptized. But they also quote Exodus 4. Second book of the Bible. Turn on there real quick. Exodus 4, verse 24. Maybe some of you remember this story. Maybe some of you forgot this story. It's kind of interesting. This is the story of Moses. Moses, of course, you remember he was drawn. That's why he's called Moses. He was drawn up by the princess. He was raised for 40 years in the prince's house. Then eventually he kills an Egyptian. Then he runs off into the wilderness. Now God has met him in the burning bush. He's calling him back to Egypt. He's commissioned him as his prophet. So that's where we are in Moses' story. Moses is heading back because God has commissioned him to be a prophet, and he's going to be used by God to save the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. So he's walking back after God has told him. Here we pick up the story, verse, chapter 4, verse 24. And it came to pass on the way that the Lord met Moses and sought to kill him. Do you remember this part of the story? Maybe that's not the part in the little kid's Bible. He's traveling back to obey God, to get the Israelites out of Egypt, and God is trying to kill him. What in the world is going on here? Why would God try to kill Moses? What awful thing must Moses have done? Maybe he's trying to kill him because he killed the Egyptian. Right? No. Look what awful thing Moses had done. Then Sapphira took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son. And she cast it at Moses' feet. And that's pretty gross. That's pretty nasty. But she grabs this foreskin, throws it at his feet, and says, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So let, So he, that's God, let him go. And so she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. You see, what, what did Moses fail to do? Somebody say it. She failed to circumcise. Why? Probably support. She was tough. She didn't want that to happen. Moses listened to his wife and said, listen to God. And God decided he was going to kill Moses over this. You think maybe God's signs and ordinances are important to him? They are. He was willing to kill Moses because he refused to do it. We, too, need to listen to this, read this, and recognize to neglect to do what God has commanded is a great offense to God because all sin is a great offense to God. Or particularly, this is a great offense to God. This means if you're a believer who has been of your sins and you look at Christ as your Savior and you refuse to be baptized, plug into details. It is a great sin to God. God is offended. You are refusing to obey him. So, so far, we've seen this. One, baptism is a command of God. It is a great sin to neglect baptism and refuse to do it. It is also, baptism should be a response to someone's repentance and belief. Number four, it symbolizes cleansing from sin. Number five, it should happen shortly after someone converts to Jesus. Hope you see those five lessons. It's commanded by God. It's a great sin to neglect it. It should be a response to repentance and belief. It symbolizes cleansing from sin. It should happen relatively short after someone converts. Okay, here's the sixth lesson. Baptism is a covenantal sign that, sign and seal that signifies that one has received the benefits of the covenant. And that sounds like fancy theological language, but it is true. If you understand what I'm saying, it will greatly bless you. I'll read it again. Baptism is a covenantal sign and seal that signifies that one has received the benefits of the covenant. Now, turn over to Romans chapter four. We're running out of time. Try to get this theology. Okay, Romans chapter four. Baptism is a covenantal sign and a seal that one has received the benefits of the covenant. This passage, Romans chapter 4, describes, Moses, uh, describes Abraham. Here's what we see. Abraham, uh, the word of God says, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How was it accounted when he was circumcised or uncircumcised, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, after he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had still uncircumcised. Let me unpack this real quick. So what's going on here is that Paul is trying to explain to Jews, you're not saved by circumcision. And he points back to Abraham and says, what did God say about Abraham? He believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So it will be accounted to you as righteousness, if you also believe God. You see the argument? You have to believe God like Abraham does, and then he will reckon to your account and say, justified sinner. God died for the ungodly. God came to make the ungodly righteous by giving you his righteousness, by forgiving you of all your sins. Then he goes and steps back and says, when did God say that Abraham was accounted as righteous? Before his circumcision or after? We go to the Genesis record. It was before. So he says, so why then was he asked to circumcise them? What was circumcision about then? You see that right there in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision, Genesis chapter 17, as a seal of the righteousness of faith. Now, I think sometimes we don't understand this scripture because we don't understand what a seal is. A seal is a mark. A seal is a mark of identification saying that this belongs to somebody or this is being a signature, basically. It's a mark. So he received circumcision, the sign of circumcision, sealed or marked something. Namely, it marks the righteousness that he had by faith. God said you're righteous. Then later on, he gave him a sign or a seal to indicate that he was right with God. Namely, circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant. So now Abraham could look at this sign or this mark and say, I know I'm actually part of the people of God. Because God not only said it, but I can look down and see that I have the sign or the mark of the covenant. Everybody see that? The circumcision pointed to the covenant. The covenant points to righteousness, the righteousness that he has by faith. And this is exactly the way that baptism works too. Circumcision did not make you part of the covenant or at least a part of the true covenant of God. It did not, that wasn't it. It was based on faith. But circumcision showed you, and it was a symbol of that spiritual reality. And same too with baptism. Baptism doesn't regenerate you. Baptism doesn't justify you. Baptism is a sign and a seal pointing to the benefits that you received through faith. That is why you believe, then are baptized. Because this baptism is an indication to you that these things have happened to you spiritually. And so when we see this baptism coming up here, it's going to be a beautiful sign and seal of the covenant. We're going to see an outward sign and symbol of something that's already happened. And This is what God wants to do for you. He wants to give you a picture, an illustration of something that's already happened to you spiritually. This is what God has done. And we have another sign and seal of the covenant as well, and that's called the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is also a sign and seal. Every time we receive the Lord's Supper, we should recognize that these are tokens of grace that God is saying, I have invited you to the heavenly kingdom. I have given you my son. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood, shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. They are signs and seals of the covenant that give us assurance that these things are true for us. Now, the fact that they're signs and seals and aren't the actual reality, again, should not make us think they're not important. They are important. In Genesis chapter 17, it says if someone refuses to circumcise their child, that child will be cut off from the covenant. So God takes his signs and seals very importantly. They're important. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, you remember the people that were disrespecting the Lord's Supper. What happened to them? Some of them were sick. Some of them died because they disrespected God's signs and seals. So don't confuse the fact that they are signs and seals, signs and markers of the covenant, means they're not important. They are important. They're important to God. He wants us to have these things. They strengthen our faith. They communicate the gospel. All right, last point. Here we go. This is probably what you've been all waiting for. Baptism signifies identification with Christ and regeneration. This is the last point about baptism. To, to understand this, you have to first understand that there's a physical baptism and there's a spiritual baptism. Remember Jesus said that he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit? That's the spiritual baptism that he promised. It was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 when God sent his Holy Spirit from heaven. We hear about this spiritual baptism in places like Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians four talk about there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord over all God, the Father. All of these things are spiritual ideas. There is one body, one Christian body, one spirit, one hope of salvation. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is the one baptism, the Holy Spirit's baptism. There's a spiritual baptism. In Galatians 3, which we already saw, as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is not saying as many of you have been dipped in water have put on Christ. It's not true. Many people have put on water and have not been united to Christ at all. This is the Holy Spirit's baptism. As many as you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit have put on Christ, have been united to Christ, are now clothed in that righteousness we've talked about. Or 1 Corinthians 12. Go over there. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, we've all made to drink in the one spirit. Who baptizes you in this text? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit baptizes you into what? Not into water, but into the one body of Christ. So the whole, this is the spirit baptism where God takes you and puts you into union with Christ. That's spiritual baptism done by the Holy Spirit. We also see a similar concept real quick with the baptism of Moses. It says that people, as they walked through the the crossing of the sea, they were all baptized into Moses. That means they were all united into Moses through that figurative baptism. So baptism by the Holy Spirit signifies engrafting or union with Christ. That's what it is. Just as water baptism unites you to the church, spirit baptism unites you to Christ. And here's the... Finally, we got to our actual passage for today's sermon, Romans chapter 6. Finally made it there. Romans chapter 6 brings all this together and tells you what baptism means, what you're going to see when you see Fazia go into that water. What does that symbolize? When you see Fazia come up out of that water, what does that symbolize? Hopefully, this will put it all together. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. What's he saying here? Salvation by faith alone leads some people to think, that means all I have to do is believe, all I have to do is repent, and I can live like the devil? That's crazy. There's no way that could be true. Well, Paul anticipates that objection. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Why? Because the gospel isn't salvation by grace alone through faith alone? No, because of the doctrine of regeneration. That's why. He says, how shall we, who died to sin, live in it any longer? Well, do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, and that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Here's his point. The reason that we can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but not live like the devil, is because when we believe, we become children of God. And when we become children of God, the old man dies. He is crucified, he is drowned, he is buried, he is eradicated. He's dead. He no longer lives. But we now have been united to Christ, and we're not just united to Christ as our Savior, as our leader, as our Master. We're also united to Christ in his death. You can't say, I'm connected to Christ, but I have no connection to his death. You're not connected to Christ. If you get Christ as Savior, you also... Get Christ as the one who put to death the old man in you. But it doesn't just leave you dead. The same unification with Christ unifies you with his death and his resurrection. That he kills the old man and a new person comes into existence. That is being born again. And so what we have here is that the symbology of physical baptism points to the reality of spiritual baptism. As I said, just as we're united to the church through baptism, we're united to Christ through spiritual baptism. And the old man dies, he's put to death, he's buried, and then he raises to newness of life. He's raised up just like Jesus was raised up. So let me ask you this question. Have you been born again? Has your heart been circumcised? Are you a new creature in Christ? Or do you just have profession? Because your profession is worth zero. Your profession will send you straight to hell. Did you know that? Again, Matthew chapter 7, Lord, 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 Lord. That's your profession, Lord, Lord. What does he say? Depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. It's worth nothing. It will send you straight to hell. What you need is to be born again. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will not see or enter the kingdom of God. That heart of stone needs to be replaced with a heart of flesh. That old man needs to die. How? In Christ. How do you get in Christ? Repent, believe, be saved, look to him, trust in him. And if you've done that, be baptized. That is what Christ says is telling you today. How do you get baptized? Grab an elder. Tell him, I'm saved. I'm born again. I want to obey Christ's commandment to have the sign of his covenant on me by being baptized. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for loving us so much, loving us in our weakness that you give us signs and seals of the covenant, that you allow us to see visible representations of spiritual truths that happen to us. Lord, we are deeply saddened that your body is so divided over baptism. People either think that they're saved by baptism or they think it's not important at all. Lord, we ask that you would help us to know the truth about baptism, that we would not see it as magical, but we would see it as important and valuable. Lord, I pray that if there be anyone here today that knows that they just have profession, they're not a new creature, They'd never been born again. All of that sounds like wishful thinking. We ask that they would repent. They would beg you to cause them to be born again, and they become a new creature in Christ. We pray things in Jesus' name. Amen.